Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Well, welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I am your host, Jeff Bloomfield, and boy, am I excited about today's guest. I know I probably say that every episode, but this one, this time I really, really mean it. <laughs> uh, listeners, you guys know we've had so many great guests out there from award-winning comedians and authors uh, to Hall of Fame football players, but we've never had a guest on quite like Karen Huff. Uh, Karen is the founder and CEO of a company called Improv Edge. Now, it's the first training company to combine improv with neuroscience and psychology to create business training with an improv twist. Now, I know this about Karen. She's big, big, big on communication, effectiveness, and performance. And she takes this improv uh, to a degree that I think many of you really don't even realize you're doing it every day and don't even know you're doing it. Now, Karen is a graduate of Yale University. Karen's first life was a professional actress and improviser, or improvisier, if you're French, uh, in Second City. One of my favorite things, I love people who come out of Second City in the improv. This led to her second life as a successful executive in network engineering, where she discovered that her improv skills helped her succeed. Now, this led her to her third life, where as an entrepreneur, she pursued the idea of Improv Edge in a research project with the Wharton School of Business in order to validate some of the concepts of improvisation as seen in high-performing teams all over companies. Now, here's what I want you to know. Today, Improv Edge and Karen and her team, they're working with Fortune 500 companies. She's worked with 50 of those, companies like NBC, Gilead, Bricker Neckler, Formica, AstraZeneca, and the list goes on and on and on, but you don't care about that. What you care about is that Karen can help you think differently about how to show up differently in any given moment. She's an Amazon bestselling author of three books. Uh, I'll let, we'll talk about those at the end. They're awesome. Uh, she's won awards. She's won the Silver Stevie Award for Most Innovative Business of the Year. She's won both the WNBA Inspiring Women Award and the WBNNC Pitch Pivot Grand Prize. Now, that's a lot of which you probably don't care about because we care about ourselves, self-preservation. But I can tell you what you do care about is that Karen Huff is going to make you a better communicator today. Karen, welcome to the Driving Change Podcast. Jeff, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. <laughs> what an enthusiastic introduction. <laughs> there you go. That's right. We have to bring it right out of the gate. There you go. So, uh, with that in mind, everyone that listens to our podcast knows that we start off by getting to know your origin story. So, Karen, take us back to where you come from and really talk about you know, who maybe had some of those early influences on your life that led you to be this amazing improviser, actress who turned into this entrepreneur, who blazing a trail that maybe people don't realize uh, from where you come from. So tell us that story. Well, thank you. I, I don't normally get asked quite that way, right? We've got the nice little package story. But um, I was raised in Kansas. So born and raised in Kansas. Um, my mother swears that I popped out singing and dancing. So I was on stage by the age of about four or five. Uh, and I was lucky. I didn't know how lucky I was until I, I left Kansas at 18. But I had 
an incredibly loving, 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 supportive family. Um, I was a professional. I did some professional work as an actor by the time I was 14. And they were, you know, very middle-class, hardworking people. I spent the summers on the farm, uh, you know, learned to drive a tractor at the age of 11 so I could be useful. And I also just was allowed to try anything I wanted to. Any activity, they would find a way to pay for the lessons. I um, was in 4-H and dancing and any anything that would ever come up, I had a very, very wide interest. So I had this amazing childhood. And I also want you to know that both of my grandfathers were entrepreneurs. My maternal grandfather, Austin Cobb, was a serial entrepreneur. And my paternal grandfather uh, was... Uh, a, a true blacksmith, like he had his own shop. He was the blacksmith for a very, very small Kansas town. So sometimes I wonder if that's part of where that drive came from, that that very hard work ethic. So um, by who knew how, but this public school kid got into Yale because my mother insisted that I go to the interview. You know, I was just going to apply to something nearby. And she heard that there were interviewers from some of the Ivy Leagues. And she said, no, no, you need to go do that. I do remember that the application fee was $50. And we didn't know where we were going to come up with that. But we did. We came up with it and, and applied. So it was it was amazing that I went there. And I have been a performer since forever. But when I got to Yale, I met some kids who knew about improv because they came from Chicago. Now, people take improvisation for granted now. Almost any small town or, or city, especially if they have a university that you go to, is going to have an improv group. You can see a student improv group. You can maybe take classes. Uh, back then, it was not a well-known art form at all. I helped to launch the first improv troupe at Yale. Uh, there weren't any in the Ivy League, so we helped to launch the Ivy League Improv Consortium. And it changed everything I knew about performance. It changed how I thought about life, how I thought about relationships, how I thought about performance, how I showed up as a person and as a performer. It, it was so transformative for me, how I showed up as a friend, how I showed up as a daughter. Um, and, and it completely changed everything that was important to me. So, you know, you, you pushed me, you said that you would dig if I wasn't honest. Um, again, this, this lucky, lucky, happy, wonderful, you know, young woman I see in my past um, did, I did have one really, really awful situation. I had gone to Paris to study abroad. And while I was there, my sister was raped and murdered, my only sibling. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, once you have something like that happen in your life, there's just no reason to wait for anything ever. Mm. Um, you know, I never got to see her. <laughs> I had already been gone for a few months when I came back. And then, and then, you know, I, my parents kept me very safe from the trial and all of that. But I, I knew that if I wanted to do things in life, I was never going to wait for them. So, you know, even though I had so much student debt and everything, when I graduated, I went straight to Chicago and became an actor. And I was pretty lucky. I could live on it. I could I could pay my little, you know, how, how your student loan is like $200 for the rest of your life. I could pay that. I could pay my rent. Um, 
I, I started getting work not only in improv. I worked at Second City. I left there pretty soon because I wanted to go start my own troops. I wanted there to be more women in the troops. I wanted us to try uh, different things. So I did that. I, I did everything from Shakespeare to I was a radio host. I was a host on a TV show in Chicago. I did a couple movies. I had a fantastic career. I had a great, a really great agent. And um, I met this amazing man walking my dog who became my husband. And so then, you know, his job took us to New York. So I'm jumping up and down like, awesome, we're going to New York. I started working in New York. I was having great luck as an actor. And then there's this day you're at a party, Jeff. And somebody goes, hey, you should come and run our network engineering sales team. And you just get, well, you're, you're completely drunk. I'm an actor. Have a nice evening, you know? <laughs> um, and so, you know, he called the next day and said, no, really, we mean it. And, and so you say, yes, and like an improviser, I, I literally called my agent and quit and walked into the halls of a corporation, the first one I'd ever really been in in my life the next day. So I took engineering and sales courses and business courses every night and I improvised every darn day. And let me tell you, Again, I just was so successful. I had the highest profit margin. That company went public. I ended up moving to another tech startup that was acquired. So I got to go through a merger. I mean, it was amazing. And it was all of this that started the idea for Improv Edge. So I should probably pause there because I've been doing a lot of talking. Um, wow. Yeah, let's let's unpack some of that. My goodness, what a what a what a journey. So here's this, I can almost picture this uh this, you know, this this 4H. You know, you probably the toe-headed pigtails on the tractor at eleven, singing at the it. top of your lungs, singing at the top of your yes. lungs, right? Here, here's this with with parents who just were like, "You go, girl. You're going to do great things. We're going to do everything we can. You know, you just go." So you had a an, an, a, an amazing support structure early on that helped you believe at a young age that you could do anything. It sounds like, and, and you were wired for that. You were wired to believe you could do anything. And isn't that so great to have that either you have it within yourself and somehow you, you, you do it because you're resisting something of maybe negative influences in your life, or sometimes you just have the, those people that just keep blowing that wind behind you and just keep pushing you forward. And thankfully you had that and, and your life wasn't without struggle. Obviously horrendous situations happen to you in your life. And for so many of us out there, it, it ha those things happen, maybe not to the degree you had to go through. Unfortunately, I'm sorry for that. That's terrible. I can't even imagine that. But we have to respond, yeah. right? Life is about events happening and how we respond, how we show up to your point. So you, you didn't go Second City. Did you cross any paths with anybody in Second City that, that, you know, uh, that we would know from the, like everybody goes through Second City. Did you go through, seems like every great comedian or actor at some point goes through Second City. Did you cross paths? Any good fun stories from any oh, other actors? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, like I knew a lot of them. So, so like Matt Walsh and Rachel Dratch and, and they started Upright Citizens Brigade. Um, you know, Armando Diaz was in my classes with me and I think we performed in one show together and he started another troupe in New York. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of actors I could point to, especially because Chicago in the day, they're now the ones that are making, you know, all the big movies, doing all that work. Um, it, just even at Yale, I ran, I had some very famous crossovers, but that <laughs> it's a long list. They're really great people. They're super successful. They're running Hollywood now. I do have to ask, was Chris Farley? He was a second city guy, wasn't he? I never knew Chris. No, and okay, he was older right. than me by, by quite a bit. So. Okay. Well, you know, Tommy Boy is our favorite sales movie of all time. So, you know, we always have to prop up Tommy Boy. Oh, well, the skill it takes. So then you go to New York, 
And I'm not sure why some guy was walking your dog, but you said you met a guy walking your dog. He, no, he was he walking your... a dog and I was, right. So he was in Chicago. We're at Dog Beach. He's got this beautiful, like purebred dog. I've got the mud I saved off the highway. He's all showered and looking nice. I had thrown on a ball cap that morning. I mean, it was just like, I can't believe he actually talked to me, but we met on that beach. And, and it, like, I think 13 months later, he proposed to me on that same beach with our dogs in tow. Now, is that, is that a microcosm of your two's personalities there, that moment? Like, you're kind of a free-for-all, go for it, throw the hat on, go walk the dog, and he's got the, you know, he's got the pure breed dog with, he's all buttoned up, and he's, don't, don't get yourself in trouble, but is there, are there some personality character traits coming out there that uh, maybe, still persist? Maybe, yeah, I mean, he's super analytical, he's always been my skeptic, you know, that I, it, like, if, if I thought something wouldn't go, he'd be like, well, you'd have to prove it to me. So I, I had to do that research. He he's uh, a finance guy. You know, he knows all about that. So he's he's really great. But he's got right. a fun loving side too. Uh, okay, good. So you go to New York. Now this is one of those cases where you it was your so you'd already been doing a lot of improv. So where did you start to to see that the tenets of improv applied? So you take this job right as a for the first time ever in this business. Did you automatically immediately see that there were some tenets of improv that were would work really well in the business world? Or were you just kind of head down? Because where a lot of people make the mistake is they go to a job and then they start to, everybody tells them, this is the way we've always done things. You should do things this way, but just put your flair on it. Where you were like probably starting to see that hey, there's probably different ways of doing things. When did that light bulb start to go off for you that there's there's some crossover here with improv and business success? Probably within about a week. Uh, because you have to realize too, um, in the first startup, there were only two women in the whole company, me running the sales team and the front receptionist. So then there was that. So, so I was unusual to begin with. And, and then in addition, I'd be even in conversations and it was so shocking for me to not run into yes. And to, to, to have to deal with. So you know, all you can do is be a model for what you want to see in the world. So I, you know, I would say yes, and I would say yes, and and suddenly clients and my boss would start responding differently, and something would go wrong, and I'd be able to just deal with it. So it was it was pretty powerful almost immediately. So give us a little backstory on the yes and, right? Because those of us who grew up with, uh, you know, Drew Carey, who didn't originate, whose line is it anyway? But, you know, he made it really popular yeah. in our cult you know, growing up. Um, the yes and became, that's where most people probably are familiar with improv at a global level, right? Because that show really took off. Yeah. Um, another guy from Ohio, by the way, the land of milk and honey. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> t- tell us where that yes and, did you, what's the history behind that from an improvisational standpoint? So, so yes and is the foundational principle of improv, Jeff. It, it can't occur without yes and. And yes and is, is we at Improv Edge, we broke it up into two concepts, yes space and building blocks. When we did our research with Wharton that then led to all of this, uh, we, we found that there were actually two ideas here. And, and yes and is really the idea that, think about it, an, an improv troupe walks on stage. There's, there's four or five of us, right? We have no script, no props, no costumes, absolutely none of the normal tools of theater. And all we have is each other and an audience who we can use, right? We don't pretend like they're not there like you do in normal theater and about two hours to fill and somebody says go. Okay, so for a lot of people that sounds like a nightmare. For me, it was the most incredible theatrical and and creative moment I think I've ever dealt with. And I, and I loved it. I loved every second of it. And the reason it works is if I walk on stage and you're my troop member, 
Jeff, and I say, hey, I'm an astronaut. What are you going to say? Yes, and I also used to build rockets as a kid, so now I know exactly what to do. Boom. <laughs> so you agreed with me, yes, we're astronauts, and then you gave me what we call a gift. You added on to it. You built onto my idea. We've got rockets now. we got ideas, and we can make the scene go anywhere. So it, it's, it's very powerful, and in the corporate world, for example, when I work with, with sea level they don't realize that just the power of saying, yes, I hear you, yes, you're valued, or saying, interesting idea, can literally skyrocket engagement for employees. Saying nothing or even, you know, not necessarily saying no, it's a bad idea, but maybe, you know, one of these. I've, I've talked to employees who said if they got a response like that, it shut them down so far or it scared them so much, they didn't contribute for six months. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's so true. And I think that this is a mindset thing, right? So we, we know that, that the brain, because the brain is primarily wired for self-preservation, it's looking for safety first and, and it's looking to reduce risk. Correct. And as it interacts with other human beings, life is a stage. Right, life is a giant improv stage, and as you interact with any human being, whether you know them or don't know them, the brain is trying to filter out: is this person here to help me or hurt me? And so, depending on how you show up to that person, in that case, the example you gave, well, here's a person in authority already, technically, right? So they have some control over me by paycheck, and their response to me, they're showing up as in they don't approve of my idea. So now I have the kind of the double risk, and so what happens naturally? We go into shutdown mode because anything else I do or say will only further put me at risk of loss. And so I think I love this concept because you're teaching us as individual communicators, how you immediately in the moment interact with anyone will, will trigger. There's a real thing in psychology, you know, it's called emotional contagion. Exactly. And psychological safety. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So by simply saying yes to people. And the thing is, you don't have to agree with their idea. There, there's a psychological difference, as you know, Jeff, in the hormones that are flowing in the brain. So the brain, um, the, the Journal of Multilingual and Multicultural Development, if you haven't seen this, did a fantastic study. It's so great because it's across cultures and across languages. And simply the use of the words that we choose can make a difference in whether or not that brain is flowing with defense hormones like cortisol, you know, for fight or flight, or if it's feeling safe. So even in writing and even in word use, if we're using words like, hey, this is a bad situation. I don't know what you did, but we got to figure this out. And you better not mess up. <laughs> okay. That, that immediately changes the chemistry of that person's brain. They go into defense. They can't even think straight. Uh, whereas the same message, really the same message said differently to say, hey, I know you've always been able to help me come up with solutions. There's been a little glitch here. So can you brainstorm with me about how we can make it better? Right. You basically said the same thing, but it's with different word usage. We'll now have a brain that is open, ready to think, ready to act, ready to collaborate. I love it. I love it. And, and for my fellow nerds that listen out there, you, you know, the idea we talk about all the time is, you know, adrenaline and cortisol are useful in the moment when they're needed to help focus your attention to get away from, you know, the rustling in the bush. Uh, but in everyday business conversations, you need a lot more oxytocin, a lot more serotonin. And the, that, that's what you're talking about. That's exactly what's initiated. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on a spot and ask you, why do you think then so many of us 
our responses in these situations as leaders or as really anyone who's communicating for a living, why, why are they more either at best a yes, but <laughs> as opposed to a yes, and, or more than likely they're a more, more of that idea of, well, didn't you see this? Why didn't you notice this? Like, wh- why do most people have a default button? It seems like even when their intentions are good, their impact is negative. Any, any thoughts on that? Don't, don't you think it's also a defense mechanism? So if we look at some of the work of Ryan and Decky, and then there, there's a, oh, shoot, oh, my colleague Erica Jackson would kill me because I can't remember the exact study, but it has to do with anxiety versus curiosity. So when we hear something we, we think is wrong or we judge, right, through all of our filters, through all of our biases that we think is not right, we immediately go to uh, defending or, or saying why that other situation is wrong rather than approaching it like a scientist or like an improviser. So the fourth concept that we talk about is called oops to Eureka. You're, you're in an unexpected situation. Your colleague says something that you didn't expect. And in the moment of oops, we all tighten up and worry that we don't know what's going to happen. This is an unusual situation. It's an idea I've never come across. And yet if we turn up the curiosity knob, which is the job of improvisers and scientists to say, how fascinating, I've never seen this before, then suddenly you're moving toward a eureka and you're saying, that's an idea that hasn't come across. Can you tell me some more about it? And sitting back and letting that other person talk through and suddenly your brain starts to get opened up to possibility is a lot of what we talk about. And I mean, Jeff, as we talk about 2021, I have to say I haven't had conversations this rich with leaders across the globe. We're working on four continents right now and uh, obviously all virtually. We used to travel there (laughs) And, and some of the conversations around how to be improvisational and the richness of that idea of waking up and not knowing what's going to happen next, the, the deep understanding of why improv matters has never been this resonant since probably the conversations I had in 2009 during the housing market crash. Mm, that's so good. And what, isn't it funny though? Not funny. It's, it's sad really um, that it usually takes some level of crisis you know, to bring us to the place where we are a little more open to these things. Um, change, for instance. Uh, Sometimes you're forced to change, and we know that human beings don't do well with change. And you you mentioned it earlier, I think our fear, our fear of the unknown paralyzes us. And if you really break it down to the psychology and the neuroscience behind it, it's because of that that fear of risk of loss, ultimately. So we're so self-protectionistic that we almost naturally, our biology default setting is is protection, risk aversion. And as a result, we our initial for many people, unless you really develop this skill, our default is no but as opposed to yes and. Right. Have you found that to be true? Uh, absolutely. And even working with people on the yes but, they think that they're saying something positive and then, you know, sliding in the criticism. If you get rid of the word but completely out of your writing and out of your terminology and replace it with and, it actually has the same meaning usually, but is far more positive, far more engaging, uh, allows you to be seen as a collaborator, allows the other person to want to be a part of that. Uh, and, and for some of this, you know, I was thinking as you were talking about, about the situation, Jeff, at Improv Edge, we call it comfortable discomfort. So, so we know when we begin to work with a team that the, even the word improv can set them <laughs> 
at high alert. They're like, what is this session going to be about? Uh, and, and so creating a place where they can lean into a little bit of an uncomfortable experience because that's how we're going to grow, but not so uncomfortable that it freezes them up. It's about adults learning again that that we do best if we're a little bit uncomfortable because the longer we sit in our comfort zone, right, the the more static we become. Yeah, if you're not growing, you're dying. That, that was kind of a long answer. Sorry, it went. You know, my brain goes like this. <laughs> no, but it's so, it's so true, and I know that. So, so here, a lot of the folks that, on my team, and the folk, probably many of the the folks that know me, they're listening. They they know. Well, Jeff, you're kind of wired. This is like this is exactly down your lane. So this is easy for you because you wake up with a yes and let's go take on the world. And I love to ideate and I, I'm a creative. That's kind of yeah. my thing, right? Um, but what about those people that, that either, maybe they struggle with anxiety. Um, I got I have two different groups of people I want to ask you about. The first group is maybe somebody who's just naturally, they've got a lot of anxiety. So they're always at a heightened fear of risk of something going wrong. Um, how do you help coach them out of that place of that natural default of anxiety into this more open space of possibility? I think number one, respecting and honoring the place where they are is where it starts. This is where inclusion starts. So I I will say one of the silver linings of the pandemic, and we've been virtual for years and years, so we were uniquely qualified, excuse me, to step into this space. Uh, And it also made the whole world more comfortable in this virtual space. Uh, what we found is that people who are usually quieter, more introverted, maybe more afraid to engage, have actually had their voices heard because of the chat. So thinking deeply about, number one, approaching that person in the way that they want to be approached. So I, I don't want to come on in, in full Karen extrovert mode. <laughs> that is, I, I learned that in that first job with those engineers. You know, I, I would feel like I'd be in second gear and they'd be just like, oh man, you are too much. I can't even take you today. <laughs> so, so number one, helping to say, hey, I, I know that this is different and I want to change a little bit so that you're more comfortable and meet you where you are so that we can have an open conversation is part of it. And then also talking about the benefit of seeing other perspectives. And then if they make the slightest contribution honoring that and and hearing it and and also sharing it is really critical because you can't take someone from here to here in a day, but you can take them from here to here. And then once they say, oh, wow, this this is okay. I, I tried something small, only asking them to try something small, then they'll be willing to take another step. I think that's also, for us, the beauty of our our deep work in diversity, equity, and inclusion, which runs through all of our content, is that you can't move a person from extreme unconscious bias to an activator. It's a matter of understanding there's a continuum for everyone, that we honor where you are, and it's all about education and learning. So does that answer your question? helping them to feel as comfortable as possible and saying, hey, just take one little step with me. I'm not going to ask you to do too much. Take one little step, try that out, see how it feels, and then we'll talk again. Yeah, I think I think one of the mistakes some leaders make, I've made it myself, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> back in the day when I was a leader in corporate America, and even even now in the last decade uh, running, running our company, I, I'm a cheerleader. 
And and I, I see I see where we're going. I'm like, you know, I'm Frank the Tank from old school. Come on, everybody, we're gonna go streaking it's in the quad. And I'm <laughs> right, and I'm ready for everybody just to come with me. Um, and and starting, I think what you're getting at is is recognizing just how different people are. Um, and great leaders can see the possibility in people, and they want to immediately just teleport them to that possibility. That's how I am. That's one of my big blind spots is I, I can see what you're capable of. And I know that if you just follow these three steps, I'll get you there tomorrow. And that's not realistic. And I think what you're saying is, is really trying to be, if you really want to be empathetic and you really want to put yourself in someone's shoes, then you have to go where they are and then incrementally help them get to where they want to be. But that, that's hard for an extrovert who's a creative, who's a visionary, who, who wants to get there faster, right, yeah. for a lot of folks. And, and you are the classic outline of a visionary. Actually, I, I fall into that too. And, and learning that, by the way, you're, you, know, you, you made a great example. So do these three steps and you'll be where I want you to be. And it's also a moment of humility for us. Because team equity is another major improv concept that, that we talk about at Improv Edge. And all of my ensemble, by the way, are very different than me. Because an improv show is no good. Like if you had four Karens on stage, it, it would be funny for maybe five minutes. <laughs> okay. You, you need people who are very different, have hugely different talents in order to make it a funny show. It's the same in business. So right. part, of, part of our humility, too, is saying... I have a vision where I think you could be, and I wonder what your vision is, because maybe it's totally different than mine, or or saying, wow, this person has such a different capability than I do. Maybe it's my turn to step back and say, what are they capable of? What do they bring to the table that I'm not used to? And maybe what they could be is something I can't even see yet. Yeah, and that's, again, because of our biology, it's so hard because we, we approach life through that lens of self-preservation. And I know that it, it's, it seems like every leader that we work with, you can't, you can't help it, but by bringing it from your unconscious to your conscious, you can start to recognize it more frequently, right? Yeah. And I think, was it, uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of others more. That is hard. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's great. It's it, you're not you're not trying to lower yourself so that you can elevate no, others. No, no. You're just simply trying to elevate others. Your focus becomes on on meeting others where they are. And this goes for it goes for business, it goes for parenting, it goes for talking to your neighbors and and I think we talk a lot with our clients on whose agenda are you on? Hmm. And in any we ask this question all the time. In any given engagement, when when you started to communicate with this individual, Whose agenda were you consciously on or Yours unconsciously on? Yeah. That's beautiful. But you're almost always on, if you don't consciously recognize you need to be on theirs, you'll always approach it from your agenda subconsciously, which will make you communicate from your agenda, right? Right, right. And Jeff, your point is perfect. I, I love that terminology too. In some of the cultural competency work that we do is around, for example, one little behavior that you can learn is what we call the pause. So as Americans, especially extroverted Americans, we're in a room, we want to stick out our hand and shake hands. I, and are you not dying to shake hands again? <laughs> Boy, this 12 months has been so hard. This whole elbow thing doesn't do it. But we, you know, we, want, to, we want to define that space because we want to be where we are. But if we think about the other person's agenda and we learn a new technique of just pausing for a minute and letting that person define what our first interaction is. Because in so many cultures, it's not appropriate to touch or to right. shake hands, depending on where you or they may be in any kind of cultural hierarchy that they have. 
So how do you show respect in that moment? Often it's simply by just pausing and smiling and letting them define it. Hard for us, yeah. right? It, it, really, it really is. Um, but if you truly care about that other person and you're trying to invest in them, I, you know, I, I go back to, I, I'm a hard, I, I, need to, I need to step in the holes several times and twist an ankle until oh. I realize to stop walking down that road uh, until they fix the pothole. I think I spent my life failing forward that way. But I think, I think what I've really learned though is I'm wired for self-preservation. I'm wired to succeed and perform. There's a lot of stuff in there that's good. There's a lot of stuff in there that's bad. Uh, but I find the most fulfillment in helping others succeed and perform. Yet I completely communicate opposite of that in my pursuit to help others succeed and perform. And I think this kind of the self-defeating, you don't realize you're doing it. You really, you really do want to help them, but then you communicate like it's all about you. But in the end, you really want to succeed, except, but then you realize that success for you really only matters if you help them succeed. And I think so many old school leaders that I've come into contact with, this was the other group I wanted you to comment on. They, they, they get in this, and there's some validity to some of this, this whole, oh, we got to get over this whole, every kid gets a trophy mentality and just suck it up, Sally, and do what I tell you to do and you'll succeed. Um, what is it about that mindset that's not only counterproductive, ultimately, it's really destructive to cultures? Because you, you still see quite a bit of it out there. Ah, that's such a boiling pot of answers there. <laughs> so um, I, I think we have to start on some level with generations, right? So from a generational perspective, you're going to see a lot of that in certain generations. It's It's very different now. And part of the frustration. So I have to feel compassion both for the leader who's frustrated and for the people who aren't responding and neither of them understand like, why are you asking me to be something I'm not? And they're saying, why, why can't you just get it done? So there's, there's frustration on both sides. So you have to feel compassion for both of them and understand that until they both realize they grew up in very different situations it's going to be a hurdle for both of them to understand. So both of them need to take a pill, step back. Well, not take, you know, take, take a breath step back, <laughs> and, and start to have some empathy and understanding for what's going on around them. So, you know, for leaders right now who think some of the things going on with, with the younger generations is, is difficult. If, if we sort of line up what this generation has had to go through and considering what they believe their futures to be, which is fairly bleak, that really changes the mindset for the person saying that. Um, and then also demanding that we all sort of fit the mold is also not a future facing attitude. I know those leaders want the best for their company. They want to drive hard. They're very, very competitive. And if they look toward the future, it doesn't look the same as it did before. So that also helps us to be a little more flexible. I think some of it too comes from the fact that it feels scary when all of the power structures and all the things that we relied on are starting to crumble and change. So very honestly, you know, I worked in it too. The whole world has been based on a very male-based, competitive, hierarchical kind of way that we move forward. 
that's still very much in place in many, many places around the globe. And there are a lot of people saying, hey, there's a better possibility. There's actually greater profit. There's greater success available to all of us if we change some of those structures. So it's going to feel a little uncomfortable for a lot of people. And again, if they're future facing, if they care about the future or even the success of their company, they're going to be willing to feel a little uncomfortable. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And I think what I've I've found is that leaders who lead that way still, regardless of their generation, even though it might be a little bit bent toward the older generation, you said it, I think it, it still comes down to fear. And the, the fear is, is if I don't, if I don't control everything and we don't hit the outcomes that expected from me, then it's all going to be on my head. So I got to make that roll downhill, make sure everybody feels the tension I feel. So it's still fear. It's, it's self-preservation fear. And then the fear of, if, if, if I show empathy, then that's in my generation, that's, you know, they're thinking that's, that's weakness, vulnerability, empathy, yeah. those are weakness. And, the, and then therefore the, people will start to take advantage of me. And then I lose again. It, it's all wired. And, and I think it's, it's through this lens of, of fear that of loss of control, loss of power, and ultimately loss of identity. And if you start to think about that, to me, the, the, the miss, conception about your identity starts to unravel everything about your life. If you don't have the right perspective on identity and recognizing that you're every human being's role here on this planet is to pursue a purpose that helps make other people to pursue a purpose. If you don't ever come to that conclusion, you'll never find that place of peace that allows you to have the empathy necessary to help other people grow. So well said. And by the way, improv speaks to that. So one of the things, one of the reasons that improv was so transformational for me is because you are a troop. You are not an individual. So I was a singer, dancer, actor. I was the lead in the show before I learned to do improv. And in improv, your number one job on stage is to make someone else look better than you. Uh, You can always tell if there's an ego on an improv stage because it never works as well. It never works as well. And it's, um, by the way, one of the games that we play uh, on virtual, live, everything is a very simple game. However, it forces the two or three players that are doing it to give up control of a very small thing, which is a sentence. And and before, you know, we at least know how to make a sentence and we know how it's going to come out, but you have to give up control and do it with two other people. And when you do that, they suddenly realize that it's funnier and it's better and it's more creative if they just give up control and work with the group. So that I think gets to the heart of some of what you're talking about here are leaders who realize that if they hire great people and give up some of their control to the greater good of what we can create together, it is unbelievably transformational. And that is the story of the most successful tech startups, companies with humble leaders that we saw in in that old goody, good to great, right? It is that so often by giving up control, you get more. So on those nights when I would do nothing but try to make everybody else on stage look better than me, support them in any way I could, uh, you know, call on them when I knew that their talent was needed, I got a huge round of applause because people can see that working. Right. I think that's huge. What you just said is huge that others... Others recognize that quality in others, and it almost makes them more attracted to that to that leader, or to that coach, yeah. or that person. Yet our our biology again goes against that, right? Because we feel like, well, that's 
if I give up, I won't be recognized for who I, whatever your default button is for pride and all those things that prevent us from being great communicators, great leaders, great parents. It's opposite. Do you think that biology changes over time? Because I know that I've got to be getting some hits of hormone when, when I'm making a client or someone else look really good, it always comes back around and helps me. And so my entire ensemble, we're a hugely diverse group. They all have that. They feel good when, you know, we've done something and yet the stakeholder is, is sort of the one getting all the applause and we're all like, yes, it does. Does it change over time? Because we, we now have so many feedback mechanisms to want to do that. I'm curious. So uh, it does. Now the biology doesn't change, but what happens is the physiology does. Uh, now look, actually, I shouldn't say that. The, the biology does change because all the way back in the late thir- in the 1930s, uh, Dr. Hebb came up with this concept that to create a habit, neurons that fire together, wire together, yes. and they create new, new axonal structural pathways in your brain. And the more that you create this pathway and repeat, it's like, it's like water flowing down a mountain. And the more it flows, the wider that crevasse goes. That's a that's a neural pathway in your brain. And then what happens is that the, the neurons start to fire the wire together. They create that pathway. Your team has has learned that pathway, and as a result of that, they activate the neurochemistry of oxytocin, serotonin. Their their outcomes of their expectation now are based on a new neural pathway. Yeah. And so they're able yeah. to do that. And so I think absolutely it does change to some degree the biology, but really that to your earlier point on the on the neurochemistry and the physiology of the physiology of of that affirmation, they've learned that their their outcome is they want the client to get the credit. That's their outcome. So when you're pursuing that outcome, you get the warm fuzzies when you feel like you've accomplished that outcome. Serotonin, dopamine, all of that goes, right? As opposed to the opposite. So totally. Yeah, it makes sense. Cool. All right. So let's, let's wrap with this. Give us some tips. Give us some improv edge gold. You've been given, you've been weaving a little bit of it in as we've gone through, but as the listeners are going, okay, what would Karen tell me to go practice? I'm not an improv specialist, but she would say, Hey, I want you to go try these two or three things that'll help you get in the right mindset to accomplish some of these things. We got the yes and one. So is that, do you, do you get, do you tell people, Hey, I want you to spend one week and I don't want you to say no or yes, but I just want you to say yes and in every conversation. Is that one of those that you would give us some of those? Yes, Jeff. And <laughs> that is exactly the tip that we give people. As a matter of fact, we even like to give them something smaller. Just go for a day or two and say See, yes. There I am, the achiever, trying to go for a week. Right, right. Just take a date <laughs> for one day with your family, with your neighbors, with your work colleagues. Anytime somebody says something, hear yourself say, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And tell me some more about your thought. So weave a yes and with an open-ended question. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. Can you tell me how it will fit with our project plan? Yeah, that, that's really cool. And, and what else did your family do this weekend? Let other people talk more than you and always start it with a yes and, yes and, yes and. Try it for a day. I guarantee you, you will learn something about a colleague you've worked with for 10 years that you didn't know. (laughs) You will gain some insight. Somebody will come up with an idea you didn't think of. Or best yet, your teenager will say more than a monosyllable to you. That is the best outcome. So so that's on the yes and piece. And, And I think another thing, which may be a little bit harder, 
is to think differently about the unexpected and your own mistakes. So oops to Eureka that I brought up earlier is the idea of, of something really tough happening. Even if it's something great, like you get a huge client five times the size of anything you've ever seen before, there's still that moment of, how are we going to deliver this, right? So that oops moment where something unexpected happened. I mean, we have all been living in a year of oops. And the true reason that we get to a eureka, oops to eureka, is because of how we choose to respond in that moment. So pause, take a deep breath for yourself, acknowledge that something has happened, and then slowly start to improvise. Uh, I've written stories actually about having a, an oops in my life that didn't get resolved for a year. It became a eureka, but it took a year. So it's swimming through a lot of uncertainty and difficulty and believing that by being positive, by being flexible, by being adaptable, by drawing in other people rather than working it all out yourself, that you can reach a eureka is true. So, so those are yes and and oops Eureka. And the last tip I want to give you is, is just really super tactical. It's uh, from the performer's side. It's from my second book. So whenever you are entering a conversation, whether it's a one-on-one -on, -one on video or you're standing up someday, we hope to get to do this again in front of a crowd to give a presentation, script and practice your first 30 seconds so that it's really exactly what you want that person to remember. Because as Jeff will tell you, human memory, recency and primacy, the first thing they hear, the last thing they hear is what they're gonna remember. So don't come in and go, hey, yeah, hi everybody. Uh, so, so glad to be here. Um, we're gonna talk about improv. No, go, do you wanna have more success today? I'm gonna teach you three things you've gotta remember. Just come up with a 30 second opening that grabs them and reminds them of why they're here and they will remember. Love it, great. Well, outside of those three things, how can the audience, the listeners learn more about you and Improv Edge and uh, where, where can you point them? Let's point them to some, some places where some fun information we can sure. learn more. Sure, so improvedge.com. You can see all of the work we've done with companies all over the world uh, in the area of, of transformational leadership transforming culture and diversity, equity, and inclusion are the three big buckets where you can see everything from negotiation to managing tough conversations uh, to collaboration and teamwork. So please visit the website, www.improvedge.com. You can find us, especially on LinkedIn. We are absolutely all over LinkedIn, the whole ensemble. We have great videos that you can watch on YouTube if you want to get a sense of how this all works. So you can go to Improv Edge Video on YouTube. And then also, if you're interested in any of my three books, or which also is a, a fourth is my Yes Deck, which is a creativity tool in the form of a pack of cards, super useful. You can find it not only on our website, but also on Amazon. That's awesome. And now listen to the audience, you're out there, you're living in a world of improv already. You might as well get better tools to help you succeed. Yeah. And what you're already doing out there unconsciously anyway. Uh, well, Karen, this is, I, I was excited about this. You did not disappoint. Um, I've learned a lot. I've got some things I got to go work on. Uh, thank you so much uh, for being a guest on the Driving Change Podcast. We'd love to have you back again sometime soon. I would love to. Thanks, Jeff. Have a great day. You too.
The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.